Good morning, everyone. Glad you're with us today. Uh, it's my joy to get to introduce a new family. That's almost become weekly. Have you noticed that? Uh, it's uh, good news again. Uh, let me introduce uh, Maggie Kent and her children. She's seated right over here. Y'all mind standing, giving us a wave where you are? Their picture's on the screen. Let me tell you about these. Um, Kinsley is five, Cadence is almost four, and Andrew is two. Uh, Maggie grew up in Tennessee and Alabama, and then her family moved to Michigan. Uh, she came back to Tennessee to attend Fried Hardeman, and they moved to Columbia uh, to be in your family. And now we get to call them part of our family. So introduce yourself to Maggie and these three so they can soon feel like home. And I also want to say a thank you to everyone who helped last Sunday night to pull off the area-wide uh, youth devotional. We hosted that, and it was a house full of teenagers. Um, was able to walk into our, our family center, and it was like wall-to-wall people like old times. Y'all remember when we used to have wall-to-wall people in our fellowship meal? I mean, it's just like, it was great. And, and But truly, those kind of events don't happen without a lot of people working behind the scenes. And so thank you for supporting our teens. Thank you for Barrett just coordinating all of that. And I'm really grateful that um, we live in a place, uh, an area where churches cooperate like that. Uh, the topic they dealt with is one that our young people needed to hear what God's word um, talks about that. It was just a, a great evening. So we do not take that for granted. Thank you for everyone who helped. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. That's going to be our text today. We're going to talk about prayer. We're going to be with Jesus in the garden. Prayer may be one of the most talked about subjects at church, while at the same time one of the least practiced. And, and think about that. Who do you know who is pleased with their prayer life? Do we not all wish we prayed more, prayed better, we just had a, a better relationship with the Lord, that prayer was just more easy for us, more, more natural? Maybe you can relate to the words of Archibald Campbell Tate. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 1800s. He said, I want a life greater, deeper, truer prayer. I found this. Eleanor Roosevelt carried the following prayer in her purse. Our Father, keep us working at task too hard for us so that we may be driven to Thee for strength. In Mark chapter 14, our text is really a turning point in this last week of Jesus' life. As we've talked about it being a stressful week. It's a moment of truth. It's the battle of good versus evil. This is Jesus versus Satan. And I want to make sure that we all notice this, that the battle was not fought at Calvary. The battle occurred in Gethsemane. That's why this is so important for us to understand. It was a moment of decision. Would Jesus allow himself to be arrested and begin the process? Or would he call those legions of angels to come and intervene? It was a moment of decision. I put it on the screen. It's on the top of your outline. Think about this. Jesus was able to carry out the plan of heaven because he faced it spiritually and mentally. And that gave him the strength to physically endure the cross. 
If you've been with us for the last several weeks, several months really, we've been walking through this last week of Jesus' life, and you remember how it's been really a roller coaster of emotions. It started kind of on a high with the triumphal entry, where everybody was welcoming Jesus, calling him the son of David, Hosanna. It was a great moment. That's followed by him going into the temple, and he sees the circus that's going on, the chaos, the extortion. So much so, he turns the tables and cleanses the temple. Well, that just opened the floodgates for criticism. His enemies didn't like him already, but now they're, he's threatening their turf. He's evading their territory. There's a bounty on his head. So Jesus then spends some critical time with his disciples in the upper room, observing the Passover. John's gospel tells us about him teaching them, praying with them. But then... He retreats to the quiet of a garden to talk to God. When I wrote that in my notes, I thought of Kerry Couch, how often he would say, let's talk to God. But notice what he's asking here. We're going to get into this as we study. Is there any other way? Is there any other way? God, would you let this cup pass? Jesus makes his way to this familiar place to pray. Put this quote on the screen from J. Howard Edington. There is, it would seem, in all of us, a need for a secret place, a place of retreat, a place where we can go apart from the pressure. It's not important if there are a few people there or there are many people there, but what is important is whether we feel safe and secure in that setting. It is a place where we can let down our guard. And we all need a place like that. Gethsemane was a place where Jesus could be alone. If you studied this before, you know some of you have been there. It's the western slope of the Mount of Olives. Olive trees still grow there today. It's secluded. It's quiet for Jesus. It was that safe place, that private place. It was a retreat I want to begin by taking note. Jesus made prayer a priority. You may know this about him already, but again, look at the text, Mark chapter 14. When they had sung a hymn, verse 26, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. But then verse 32, And they went to a place called Gethsemane. When Luke records this, he adds the phrase, As was his custom. It's almost like they went back to Gethsemane, or they went to Gethsemane again, because going to Gethsemane was his custom. That was normal for him. You ever wondered why did the religious leaders have to bribe Judas to help with the whole betrayal? Because if they're going to arrest him at night away from the crowds, they had to know what was his pattern, where was he likely to go. They had to get an informant on the inside. And what did Judas tell them? Obviously. He would go to the Garden of Gethsemane because it was his custom. See, Jesus knew to make prayer a priority. It was normal for him. It was natural for him. 
So in this stress-filled week, of course, Jesus would make time to pray. Now, notice, this is not an emergency prayer. This is not a, everything else is failing, so I've got to pray. That's the last thing I can do kind of prayer. That's not the approach at all. Throughout his ministry, you read through the Gospels and you record Jesus constantly praying. Now what happens is sometimes we're reading through our Bible and we're noticing the event or the miracle or the teaching or whatever and we miss that phrase that he prayed before the event. Like in Matthew 14, he miraculously feeds the 5,000 men plus women and children. But there's a line in there that says, after he dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And then even before selecting the 12 in Luke 6, verse 12, he said, went to the mountain to pray. All night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them the 12. It was a big moment. He went to prayer all night before then. Jesus made prayer a priority. He did not let other things displace that from his life. You've heard this before, but it needs to be said. If the holy, perfect Son of God needed time to pray, how much more do we? If He made it a priority, how much more do we need to make it a priority? I read this quote, The tragedy of our day is not unanswered prayer. It's unoffered prayer. Again, we talk about prayer all the time, but how much do we actually pray? But I've always been encouraged by Luke 11, 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Don't you love that? I mean, they wanted to know. Teach us. How do we do this? How does it happen? What do we do? But also notice the eagerness, that desire. So when you feel inadequate, when you feel ill-equipped, when you feel like, I don't know what to say, I don't know how to begin, I don't know, I don't know how to pray, you're not alone. Even his closest disciples were asking, Lord, teach us to pray. You need to grow in this area. I need to grow in this area. We all do. Every elder, every seasoned saint, the best Bible class teacher, we all would say the same. It's true. Even the Apostle Paul admitted this. Look at Romans 8, verse 26 and following. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We don't even know what to pray for, Paul says. Yet, Paul says, don't let that stop you. The Spirit's going to intercede. God knows that. You just start and he'll take it from there, we would say. Children seem to get this. More easily than adults. You realize that? Have you seen that to be true? They'll just say it. And they're not intimidated if their wording is odd or different. Dr. David Heller wrote a book called Dear God, Children's Letters to God. Let me just share a few. When an 11-year-old said, Dear Heavenly Father, God, I pray to you every night. Sometimes I pray to you during science class. This is not good for my grades. A seven-year-old said, Dear Lord, my grandma just died and went to heaven. Please take care of her. Her name is Grandma. An 11-year-old said, Dear God, I learned in school that you can make butterflies out of caterpillars. I think that is cool. What can you do for my sister? She's ugly. 
P.S. Please don't tell my parents that I wrote to you. When an 11-year-old said this, Dear God, my dad thinks he is you. Please straighten him out. <laughs> One minister shared this about a family that for, for a while was quite active in the church. He said, but when life got easier, a little busier, they gradually shifted away from their spiritual influence. More and more weekends were spent at the lake. Eventually, they dropped all their spiritual connections and worship. The minister said he had not seen or heard from them in, in years. And then he got a phone call one night. Can you come to the hospital? My son's been in a horrible accident. When he got to the hospital, the doctor was coming out to tell the family, we've done everything we can. You need to pray. A horrible moment. He said it was this awkward silence. And finally the dad looked over at the minister and said, I don't know how to pray. I have forgotten. When summer comes and school is out or hunting season opens or travel ball begins or you fill in the blanks, when you're in good days and good health, full of wonderful opportunities, how do you keep putting God first? How do you make him a priority? And I think about this, with online worship, it's, it's easier than ever than just to check out or become passive with that approach. So please be careful not to let that stunt your spiritual connection to God, that you can just tune in and then tune out like it's just a box to be checked. Because here's what I have experienced. It can happen so quickly. When I was in college, I worked two summers at a factory. It was hard work, 12-hour rotating shifts, which meant I missed more Sundays than not because I was at work. If I wasn't working the 12-hour of the daytime during Sunday, I had just got off from working. I had to sleep because I was going back in that night. So I'd missed the whole Sunday. And here's what happened. Earlier in that summer, on that Sunday morning when I'm going to work at 6 o'clock, I'd realize this is Sunday. I'm going to work. Everybody else is going to worship. And it would just happen, you know, at the time that church would begin, I would just be aware. Look at my clock. Ah, time for worship to start. And even think of, I wonder if they're taking communion now. Uh, I bet the sermon's about over. Uh, they're probably wrapping up. Everybody's talking and visiting. And I'm working, but it was just there, just aware of what I'm missing. But what I noticed is by the end of the summer, just 10, 12 weeks later, I'd get up and go to work. I'd be halfway through the day and not even realize it's Sunday. It happens that quick. I mean, I was attending a Bible college. I was pursuing a Bible degree. But just so quickly, life just pulls us away. In no time at all, we forget how to pray. Benjamin, Paul Benjamin said this, Sometimes we have to be knocked off our feet in order to find our knees. And throughout Scripture, you know this, story after story reminds us that God does some of his best work when life is at its worst. Last week we talked about Bartimaeus, who was blind, he was desperate. He had no hope until Jesus walked by. Or think about the adulterous woman who was as good as dead until Jesus came into her life. Or think about the murderer, the convicted murderer, hanging on the cross, but at that moment of decision, that moment of truth, 
spoke up in faith about Jesus, and today is within Jesus for eternity. God does some of His best work when we are at our worst. And for some of you, life has been rather easy. You've not experienced tragedy. You've not really had any significant loss or challenge. And when things are going well and things are going busy, we've talked about this so much, prayer gets bumped down the line because there's so many other things that's just competing for our time and our attention. But eventually, life is going to happen to you. You're going to get that phone call. You might lose your job. You're going to get that, that message from the one you love that just shakes you to your core. You'll be summoned to court. You'll be the ones making the funeral plans. And you will need to pray. Prayer becomes a priority. See, I believe Jesus, for him it was a priority because, and here's the second point, he understood the power of prayer. That's why it was a priority. He understood what was going on here. See, if prayer is a priority for you, and you understand the power, and it becomes a part of your daily rhythm. There may be times where you set aside to pray, but more than that, it's just who you are. It's just part of you. It's just part of your life. It's not your last resort. It's not key to the battle. Prayer is the battle. Look at Luke 22, verse 32 and following. He said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, you may be so familiar with this prayer, with this story of what happens in Gethsemane, that you might miss some significant things that Jesus is modeling for us. I want to point those out. First, I want you to notice his prayer was private. It was private. There's times to pray with others. The Bible talks about that, and we should. But there's times where it needs to be private. It is difficult for intense, fervent, 100% authentic prayer to happen when you're among others. It's just true. It's just the way we are. When you're praying with others, whether that's family or friends or maybe a church group, you are conscious of your thoughts. You know, they're following along with what you're saying, and so you're guarding your words, you're choosing your words. And because of that, prayers in any kind of group setting, it could be even the, the prayer for a meal around the table, much less maybe something with a group of friends or, or maybe in a church setting. But in those settings, our prayers become more clean and tidy and even sterile, we might say, predictable. We don't want to be pretentious. We don't want to be fake. But there's the challenge of, of leading others in prayer. Not all bad. For the most part, it can be effective when you're leading others because they can follow your line of thinking and pray with you. But a personal prayer, a private prayer, has no limitations. Only God is listening. Nobody else is there. So you pause and you repeat 
and you cry. And you agonize. You ask questions. You get angry. You cry some more. Then you get distracted. You go down some rabbit trail. And you remember, oh wait, I'm praying. And you come back to praying. Does that describe your private? Am I the only one that prays that way privately? I don't think so. Because when you pray privately, you can be just 100% real, raw with God. Private prayer and public prayer, they're different. They should be. But notice, Jesus leaves the disciples at the front gate, but he takes three of them with him a little bit further into the garden. Mark 14, look at verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with them Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Peter, James, and John, you know those three because they're mentioned so often. They seem to be the closest to Jesus, or at least they seem to have the front row seat more often than not as you walk through the Gospels. They were the ones having the conversations with Jesus. They are the ones that are at the Mount of Transfiguration. Here he calls them to go deeper into the garden with them. I hope reading this detail helps you and me to see Jesus' humanity. Because when you're under pressure, there's nothing like a, a close friend to be there. For you, to call on them, to share that with you. Now, no one can force you to have a deep spiritual friendship. That's up to you. You have to be that friend and you have to make that friendship. But that's why we as a church try to do all kinds of things to kind of help you to do that. There's Bible classes every Sunday morning where you can share in the Word with each other. There's small group Bible studies where you not just share in the Word, you share life with each other. All kinds of opportunities to serve and minister elbow to elbow. None of those is by checking your box, earning your way to heaven, but they're opportunities for you to make a spiritual connection, to share your life, share your faith with people. Somehow to grow. Now, you may have a, a spiritual connection that's beyond this church family. Great! As long as you've got somebody in your life. But let me ask you the question. Who's praying for you every day? Who is praying for you every day? And whom are you praying for every day? That kind of relationship we're talking about. Your close circle of spiritual warriors can help you. You're having a difficult day at work. A trying time. Maybe you're struggling with your teenager. Maybe your health is just taking a mental toll, a spiritual toll. You're not getting better. See, if Jesus did this, why shouldn't we? Jesus pulls in these closer three, but notice what happens here. And this is key. Notice what happens. They blow it. They fail him. They fall asleep. They have this amazing opportunity to be there and support Jesus, and they can't do it. So take note of that too. We need people to help us, but they're not God. So there may be times where they don't come through for us. Look at Mark 14, 37. He came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? 
Luke shares a little bit more insight of what's going on. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. You ever been exhausted from sorrow? Jesus had the weight of the world on him. It was a moment of truth, but it had not been a cakewalk for his disciples. They'd been through this with him. They'd been through this intense period. They were exhausted spiritually, mentally, and even physically. So Jesus said, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We sometimes say that, don't we? Spirit is willing, but the flesh and weak. But check yourself on this one. We get the weak part. But is the Spirit willing? How much are you hungering and thirsting for the kingdom of God? Psalm 4610 just reminds us, be still and know that I am God. So his prayer was private because it needed to be. But it was also specific. See, Jesus knew the plan. In fact, you remember he'd been telling his followers, got to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. He knew the plan all along. Yet Jesus prayed, is there a plan B? Is there another way? Look how Luke says, Luke 22, verse 40. And he withdrew from them from about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, God is able to answer prayers in very dramatic, miraculous ways. We know that. The Bible is full of that. God can change his mind. Did you know that? Do you remember how much the Bible tells us that? Remember Moses? Remember Ahab? Remember Hezekiah? Remember Jonah? Time and time again, God said this, somebody prayed, God changed His mind. God can change His mind. We need to remember that. Now, we've got a rational side of our brains, a logical part of our thinking, where we know the facts of the situation. We realize that short of God intervening, this is going to happen. This is sort of the the consequence of what's going on. And, And we see that in our mind. We understand the physical limitations. But God is bigger than all of those. Do we believe that? So when you pray, and you're at that moment, don't be afraid to remind God that he can change his mind. He's done it before and he can do it again. Prayer is powerful. And this is a moment of truth, again, between humanity and divinity. Jesus, the Son of Man, the most common name he used for himself versus Jesus, the Son of God. How's it going to play out? How does the story end? John opened his gospel saying the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, telling us that Jesus was human. Jesus was approachable. Jesus was relatable. Jesus was like us. Jesus could understand. And we struggle with this concept of understanding Jesus as human, but I hope you see that in the garden. This is His humanity. God, is there any other way? 
Max Lucado wrote this. When we think of the divinity of God, it's easy for us to stomach him that way. Keeping him divine keeps him distant, packaged, and predictable. But don't do it. For heaven's sake, don't do it. Let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the mire and the muck of this world. For if we let him in, he can pull us out. But also notice Jesus' prayer was repetitious. Now, repetition can be a two-way street. Repetition can become mindless, meaningful. Sometimes you sing a song and you don't even know the words you sang. You've done that before. We'll do it again. That's kind of the, 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 the downside of repetition. Jesus warned about vain repetition in prayer. Remember that? That's the way the King James Version translates that. Most other translations render it babbling, long-winded, or empty words. But here's a positive side of repeating something, of saying it again and again. It can communicate sincerity. It can communicate, I really want this. I really believe this. It's, I'm, I'm going to keep bringing this up. This is really important to me. Parents, have you ever had your child to ask you for something and you kind of ignore it the first time? And maybe the second time? And maybe the third time? But if they just keep bringing it up, think, I think they're serious about this. Now, there's a way we might call that nagging, and it can become nagging, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about you won't let it go. That's the repetition that was going on here. Jesus repeats this prayer three times. Remove this cup. Let it pass. James Dobson wrote about a little boy having trouble with his bedtime. You may have read this story before. It was bedtime. He was upstairs, but he wouldn't go to sleep. He would say, Dad, can I have a drink of water? The dad would yell from downstairs, upstairs, no, go to sleep. A little bit later, Dad, can I have a drink of water? No, go to sleep. Finally, the dad got tired of it and said, if you ask, speak up one more time, I'm going to come up there and spank you. It's like a long silence. And then the little boy said, Dad, on your way up here to spank me, would you bring me a drink of water? <laughs> there is something about repetition. He says, I mean this. This is important to me. Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Prayer was a priority for Jesus because he understood the power. But also, get this, he understood the purpose. Why do you pray? Why do you pray? Well, let's notice the purpose for Jesus here. Jesus prayed to receive an answer. Let me ask you a question. We're going to talk about this more in our small group Bible study. I really want you to be a part of a group and talk about this. Does this bother you? Does this bother you that Jesus, who knows the plan, who came to execute the plan, to live the sinless life, who kept drilling into his, his apostles, I mean his disciples, I've got to go, I've got to go, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Now, he's praying to God, is there any other way? God with you, all things are possible. Let this pass. Does it bother you that your Savior is asking Jesus for another way? Does that make us uncomfortable just a little bit? What are we supposed to think about a prayer like this from Jesus? 
See, I believe this Jesus in this moment is helping us to see his humanity. That he went through it proves his deity and his amazing love for us. So notice two purposes to this prayer. First, he prayed to discern God's will. He keeps talking about that. Fred Craddock, you don't know the name, but he's like a preacher's preacher. He says this, too often we are not interested in prayers, but only in answers to prayer. We're more interested in knowing the outcome. Just give me the answer. Paul mentioned in Romans 12, verse 2, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. So Jesus is in this terrible moment of agony. Look at the screen. Just a couple of how the Gospels kind of help us to understand what's going on with Jesus here. Mark records Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Matthew says he he began to be sorrowful and troubled, saying, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Luke shared, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. This was an intense moment for Jesus. So he was praying to discern God's will. But the second purpose is that Jesus prayed to surrender to God's will. Not my will, but yours be done. But he asked the question, is there any other way to pay for the sins of mankind? Is there another way? In Old Testament, all the way to Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. See, fear of death may be one of the strongest weapons in Satan's arsenal. It can bring the most faithful, devoted believer to their knees. But notice, it's more than just a fear of death for Jesus. At this moment, and we sang about it in some of our songs that Tucker chose for us today. At this moment, Jesus is about to become a sin offering. He's praying for more than just help with the excruciating pain of the scourging and the death by crucifixion. The perfect lamb who had never sinned is about to become sin. One author said this, when God looks at the cross, he will not see his son, he will see our sin. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knew all of this was just hours away. We talked about the last week. We're down to hours now. And so he prays, Father, remove this cup. All things are possible. You can do it. Remove this cup. Let it pass. Not my will, but yours be done. So notice what happens after this intense prayer. It, it, it is amazing. It, it's like a, flip, a switch was flipped. Jesus goes from being open, raw, I'm sorrowful, agony, to the point of death, telling his disciples that. Now he's resolved. Now he's resolute. Now he's strong. What happened? What happened? God gave Jesus Exactly what he needed. 
There's a line in Luke's gospel that mentions an angel appeared and strengthened him. So you've got Jesus on his knees, sweat drops like blood, deep agony, praying to his father, is there any other way? And look what Mark says. Mark 14, 41. It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, John's gospel helps us to see the change. He goes from that troubled, agonizing, kneeling, to rising confidently. Say, got to work the plan. Let's go. Jesus doesn't sit there like a sitting duck. Knowing what Judas is up to, knowing his enemies are on the way, he's not sitting there waiting like I know it's coming. He stands up and he starts walking toward them. You ever notice this? John 18 verse 4, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, they fall not in defense. They're in shock. Because if you go back and you read the original language, it doesn't say, I am he. Jesus says, I am. You heard that before? That's what they heard. And they were so overwhelmed, it knocked them on their backsides. There is power in prayer. Now, what changed? No circumstance changed. Get that. It did not. But Jesus is almost like a whole different person. He's completely different coming out of the garden than going in. Sometimes we say prayer changes things. Not one of my favorite statements because it's not prayer that changes things. It's God who changes things through prayer. And he gives his children... This opportunity at any time, you, any of you, if you are His, you can go to the throne of heaven. You don't have to have another person. You don't have to have a parent. You don't have to have a church leader. You, as His child, can go to the throne of heaven and He hears what is on your heart. Even if you are not even able to utter the words, He knows. This is what the writer of Hebrews was talking about in Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. You know, on Sundays as we commune, we, we put our focus on Jesus and the cross, and we should. That's kind of part of it. We eat the bread, his body. We drink the cup, his blood. But do we ever think about the agony that the Father went through? Yes, Jesus died the most excruciating death on the cross. But parents, when your child is suffering, when they're hurting, when they're going through a crisis or a trial, doesn't it kill you? You would give anything for that to happen to you. Because when it happens to your child, it's happening to you. 
Sometimes parents show their love to a child by saying yes to their request. They're asking for more freedom, and we love them enough to give them more freedom because they need to grow, they need to mature, they need to branch out, they need to, they need to grow. Sometimes parents show their love to their children by saying no. Can't let you do that. That will not be good for you. I love you too much to let that happen. Jesus says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. And God the Father said no. God the Father said no. Without Jesus praying for strength in Gethsemane, there would be no Calvary. And if there was no Calvary, there would be no resurrection. And if there's no resurrection, then we have no Savior. And if we have no Savior, we have no hope. But Jesus prayed, and God gave him what he needed. And he'll give you what you need. We have hope. I say we have hope. I have hope. Do you have hope? Our song that we're going to sing is to encourage you to say yes to Jesus. God allowed his son to die on the cross to pay your sin debt because there's no way you could pay it. There's no way you could pay it. You deserve hell. But he doesn't want you to go there. So much so that when his son said, is there another way? He said, no, because he wants you in heaven. Do you want to go? Confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Let him make you a new creation in baptism. Let him give you his Holy Spirit. So at any time, you can pray, and God will help you. Would you come as we stand and sing?